0: Welcome to the 3 Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge. And today, we're discussing the Toronto Argonauts clinching first place in the East Division. The Montreal Caravans defeating the Laval rouge in a hotly contested rivalry game. The report detailing the future possibilities for Simon Fraser's football program. Trevor Harris planning to return to the field with the Riders this season. And our picks for Week 16 in the CFL. But first. The BC Lions
2: completed an outrageous comeback on Saturday night, scoring three touchdowns in three minutes to beat the Ottawa Red Blacks 41-37. Meanwhile, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers faltered in steel town as Zach Kolarz threw three second-half interceptions to lose 29-23 to the Ticats. Which team had the more surprising result? And which one do you see as the favorite to win the West division?
0: The more surprising result had to be that miraculous comeback. And the reason that JC Abbott's not on the podcast is because I think he had a (laughs) heart attack and is trying to catch up his heart to everything that happened there. He absolutely loved it as he should. We all did. It was the largest fourth quarter comeback in BC Lions history. Second largest in CFL history. And it adds to... A number of entertaining games this season, Hodge, 37 of 59 games in the CFL this year have been decided in the final three minutes. That's 63%. Have there been some duds? Yes, but they have been few and far between. The CFL has been worth its entertainment value. I think there's a lot that you could pick apart here in the late goings, especially for the Red Blacks. They failed to close out another game in the fourth quarter with the lead. And I think that's why the pressure has turned up on Bob Dice. But as for your original question, I think the BC Lions were full value for this comeback win. And it was a bit of a letdown spot for Winnipeg going into Hamilton. I'm not going to just sort of give them a pass on it. Zach Calaris needs to take better care of the football. That's an issue that has... Popped up every now and again for the Bombers over his tenure there, and especially, I feel like, in the last couple of seasons. So that needs to be taken care of. But really, the Bombers know the games they got to crank it up for, and I think that they still will be first place in the West Division. But that's going to probably be decided in that October game, right, Hodge? Yes, and I do think that the the Winnipeg Blue Bombers had
2: some breakdowns, specifically offensively. I mean, the first pick from Malik Carney, that is 100% a coaching pick, the way that he rotated out of that defensive front back into coverage. Obviously, that is something that defensive coordinator Mark Washington saw on film as something that that unit could take advantage of. But there's no excuse for the next two picks. I mean, throwing it up in a double coverage to the Stavros, Katz, and Tontis safety, a.k.a. the... California, what, what, where's he from again? The the Baker's Bakersfield Bandit. Bandit. Bakersfield Bandit. Throw it up to the Bakersfield Bandit. There's no excuse for that. right? To me, Stavros Katzantonis has been the best safety in the CFL for the past month since he took over that spot for Tunde Adelike, which is saying something, because Tunde Adelike, first of all, is a very good player, but secondly, is the highest paid defensive back in the entire CFL. Stavros is going to be making money when he reaches free agency this offseason. So, that all said, you know, celebrate the Thai Cats, bury the Bombers a little bit. I'm here to bury the Ottawa Red Blacks. My goodness, what a bunch of losers. <laughs> I'm sorry. There is no other way to say it. There's This is pathetic garbage late in games. This team has lost seven straight games, and it is not one person. It is not one individual. This team, I was looking at the numbers this morning, Mr. Dunk. This team right now, in turnover, differential, league-wide, is actually doing really well. They're third. They're plus four on the year. They are tied for first in takeaways. Points four, as much as their offense has seemed anemic at times, is ranked fourth league-wide. Now, points allowed league-wide, they're eighth, but their point differential is way better than Saskatchewan's. It's way better than a lot of other teams, and they've got the fewest wins, Of anybody in the league, when you're doing a good job of protecting the football, you're taking it away, you're scoring a good chunk of points, this team should be 500. They should be at least 500, and yet they've lost seven straight games, and that decision by Bob Dice to kick that 50-yard field goal at the end of it, to me, was the worst of the bunch. Again, I'm not blaming this loss on any one person. You don't give up a three-touchdown lead with three minutes left to go on one guy. But why is Bob Dice trying that field goal? You're up 10. What does going up 13 do? Either punt the ball through the end zone to go up 11, if you really want to expand your lead, or have Richie Leone pin the Lions deep, make them go 100 yards for their touchdown, or go for it. It's third and three. You get the first down, you win. If you don't get it, BC still has to go back 70 yards. Don't boot it to Terry Williams. So right now, to me, the Red Redblacks, the numbers the performance, everything. These guys do not know how to close out games, and it is heartbreaking for those fans who have done a great job of supporting that team for the past number of years, despite the fact that let's call a spade a spade, they're going to miss the playoffs for a fourth consecutive season. Completely unacceptable. This is a league where six of the nine teams make the playoffs every year. They're going to miss it for a one, two, three, fourth straight year. Right now, that team is just a bunch of Losers. They don't know how to win.
0: In all fairness, let's provide a little balance here because I agree with all of your points there, Hodge. But Bob Dice is a first-year head coach. Yes, he had the interim tag last year. Dustin Crum is still in his first year as a CFL starter. And that only happened because Jeremiah Masoli suffered that non-contact season-ending injury. So – I understand being harsh on them and I would agree with you that they sort of had this losing mentality and they've given up a bunch of leads late in games. Those stats are great, but you got to close out the games and get wins. Though I do think there is reason for positivity here. And most importantly, Dice needs to show that he can learn from these situations and whatever message he's preaching to his team needs to get through to close out these ball games because Sean Burke, the general manager, I think has done a great job of investing along the lines, especially the offensive line and putting some young, intriguing talent on that team combined with some veteran leaders that have really given the red blacks a chance to compete. But the thing they have to do is get it done on the field. And especially in the fourth quarter, and they need to be much better. And if they would have been even in just a couple of those games, we'd be talking about the red blacks in contention to make the playoffs. But as you said, their season they is all but over. They did not. And, some teams
2: deserve the benefit of the doubt. For the Red Blacks, with the way that they've been, again, and I'm not blaming any individual person, this, span, this problem spans multiple general managers, multiple head coaches, multiple starting quarterbacks, multiple offensive coordinators, multiple defensive coordinators. This problem is this organization as a whole has a stinky loser atmosphere surrounding it, and someone needs to get a high-powered fan, get a cross-breeze blowing, and get it out. It's like they've got, it's like they got bed bugs. They just have to get everything into the washing machine. And absolutely purify this franchise. Because, by the way, you talk about Dustin Crub being a first-year starter. Okay, how many games did Chad Kelly started before this season? Answers, one. How many games did Trey Ford started? Answers, three. How many games did Taylor Powell started? Zero. They're, this is not a team that is dealing with greater hardships than any other. This is just a team with a bunch of guys who, over the years, seem to have grown comfortable losing together, and that needs to change. I am a believer in Bob Dice. It breaks my heart to say anything otherwise because he's a Winnipeg guy, and I gotta us Winnipeg guys gotta stick together because Winnipeggers are perennially underrated. But that being said, this team has got to get it figured out because they have wasted this season, to be quite frank. Now, getting back to the question, I also still have the Bombers winning the West Division, but this made things a lot more complicated, right? Because watching that game, I was writing off my article. I was in Montreal in the hotel room, writing off that first game on Saturday, the Winnipeg-Hamilton game, and you're going, oh, geez, like, uh, assuming PC gets it done at home against Ottawa, which I think was felt like a safe assumption. It's like, okay, this the, the standings are essentially tied. Right. Winnipeg 10-4, BC 9-4, or 8-4 at that point, going to 9-4, and, and then obviously the Red Blacks look like they're going to do the, Im- not impossible, but the improbable, and they crumbled late like a soggy, saltine cracker. No good. No good there for the Ottawa Red Blacks at the end of the game. My goodness.
0: The Argonauts clinched first place in the East Division after beating the Alouettes 23-20 on a late touchdown catch by Tomonte Coxie and a field goal from Boris Bidet. That was set up by an interception from Jamal Peters, the team having nothing to play for over their final six, count them, six regular season games. How much should they rest their starters to prepare for the playoffs? And most importantly of those starters, Swag Kelly.
2: Well, I talked to Ryan Dinwiddie and Chad Kelly after the game. I was in Montreal for it. And Essentially, Chad Kelly, unsurprisingly, I don't think this will shock anybody who's either spent time around Chad Kelly or watched interviews that have been done with Chad Kelly. He wants to play, right? He he hasn't said it. He's saying all the right things. But I would imagine part of that is he wants to win MLP this season and not just for obviously the the satisfaction of getting that award, but also for the added benefit of the incentives that are in his contract. Now he's going to be the highest paid player in the CFL in 2024. Why not cash in a little bit before that? He certainly deserves it, right? I mean, that team has been lights out there 11 and 0 this year when he starts and finishes games. But Ryan Dinwiddie did say as much as he, he still had to at the time talk to Mike Pinball Clemens, the general manager and the other guys in leadership positions with that organization. He did assume that they were going to set Chad for a game, but that club it's a, it's a wonderful problem to have, but it is, I do think, a problem. How do you stay sharp when you've got a third of your season left and the games mean nothing?
0: And you're going to have another bye week in that East semifinal week as well. Exactly. So there's going to be seven weeks here where Chad Kelly is not at least playing meaningful football. I think it's not as easy as some people think, but the Blue Bombers have shown they've gone about a kind of in small little different ways and they've dealt with this. And I think the Argonauts will be just fine in the way that they deal with this as well. And I understand Kelly wanting to win MOP and he should be in that conversation. He's easily the East division's most outstanding player. I think regardless of what happens the rest of the way, but if we're going to have that conversation, I think Zach Laris is still the best player in the league as much as some people might argue some other players should be in that conversation. And I think one of his teammates, Brady Oliveira, should be in that discussion as well with the season that he's having. But you take Calaris away from the Bombers, and I know it's not MVP, it's MOP. I don't think this team is atop the West Division. And I think Calaris, week in and week out, his interceptions have spiked here and there, but has been the best player in the CFL for a third straight season, the amount of touchdowns that he's throwing has been very impressive, though Kelly's making it interesting. I do think that, you know, we focus so much on the quarterback position and will Kelly play, will Kelly not play, that some of the other positions you want to make sure you're in a flow going into the playoffs as well, but the Argos have a luxury of time now. They can allow some players to get back close to 100% when – Some of the other teams around the league are still scratching and fighting either for playoff positioning or just to make sure that they make the postseason. So the Argos should be well rested. And if you're going to talk about that rest versus rust conversation, I would always rather be rested because it means your team has done really well and you should be at close to 100% as you possibly can. Well, Dinwiddie did
2: talk about the other side of the coin, which is if we're arresting guys, that does mean we get to develop players who maybe would be good enough to be making the active roster elsewhere or even starting elsewhere, but are stuck on the practice roster or stuck as healthy scratches because the, the Argos just have so much depth right now. Like this team has already in the regular season had players as healthy scratches who would be like not just starters, but some of the best players on other teams, they've had Sean Oakman as a healthy scratch. They've had Tavares McFadden as a healthy scratch on the defensive side of the bell. Quantes Stiggers, who, by the way, I got the chance to meet in person at that game. I did not know how big he was. 21 years old. He is six foot one, 200 pounds. He's almost the same height as me. I did not think he was that big. To me, I think he's going to the NFL in a year or two. That's an aside. But the one thing I will point out, and this is just a logistical thing. I did write about this in my post game column is some people have said, well, why not just rest everybody for all six games? Well, that's even if you wanted to do that as the Toronto Argonauts, you couldn't do it. And the reason for it is you've got the one game injured list where you are allowed to put healthy players if you're a CFL team. However, when you put healthy players on the one game injured list, their money still counts against the salary cap. And if you're bringing up, let's say 20 guys from the practice roster or from elsewhere off the streets, To fill in for those 20 starters that you've rested, you're now paying essentially 20 extra players per game. From a cap standpoint, that is not possible. Teams at this point of the year, generally speaking, have little to no money left to spend. They are tapped out from trying to get, of course, into the postseason. So the Argonauts, will they have the option to rest some guys? Yes. You know, if you get guys onto the six-game injured list, then you can save some money. On paper, guys do have to be hurt to go on the six-game injury list. Are they always hurt? Uh, it's a fair question. Sometimes there's some pretty uh, – I'll, I'll, I'll coin them convenient injuries in the CFL. I do think it's better police now than it was. There was about a 10-year stretch where Jim Pop's first-round pick with the Montreal Alouettes would magically go down with an injury on the, nine, the old nine-game injured list and sit there all season while they were being developed, but I think it's a little bit better policed now than it was 20 years ago. But the bottom line is the Argos, of course, do have to play these next six games. They have to stay sharp, and they're not going to be able to rest everybody that I'm sure they'd want to, even if they did want to go with a skeleton crew. So it's going to be interesting to watch. And fortunately, we have something interesting to watch because, Lord knows, outside of that second spot in the East Division, the rest of it looks pretty much done. Toronto 1, Ottawa 4, and we'll see, we'll see what happens in the middle, I guess. Bob Copeland, the senior vice president of McLaren Global Sports Solutions, completed his four-month review of the Simon Fraser University football program and concluded that the only way forward would be for the program to move to U Sports. Copeland also criticized the athletic department, which is currently without a director following the departure of Teresa Hansen saying they operate without a strategic plan. Do you have any hope that we'll see the red leafs back on the gridiron anytime soon?
0: Not if they don't have a strategic plan. And that's probably part of the reason Hansen left that job or was ushered out of Simon Frazier. Perhaps I should phrase it. It's very clear that this athletic department was not, operating in anything close to an economically efficient way there was a deficit i think it was reported by tsm's far and Lodge, of about two million in this athletic department and that is just simply awful and it's something sure that SFU can point to and say hey well yeah that's probably why we shouldn't be playing football but if the department was being operated efficiently then a move to u sports would have been easy and yes it will take an investment to move to U Sports, but it's not going to be a massive investment. You're going to run your football program about the same. You probably won't even have the same number of scholarship athletes as you would have in the NCAA, especially for giving guys complete full rides. It's a little different in U Sports than that, even though there are more scholarships in U Sports right now. So I think. It seems like, at least on the outside, that Copeland did a solid job, interviewed, I think it was over 200 people for this report, and it just revealed more of the same, Hodge, which I'm sure you're going to touch on, that this was just completely and utterly fumbled by Hanson and the rest of Simon Fraser. This team should be playing football this year. It should have been a smooth transition. If they didn't want to be in the NCAA anymore into U-sports the Canada West potentially in 2024. So this was just fumbled all over the place from Simon Frazier and has nothing to do with the student-athletes there. So this
2: team, in its history, playing in the NCAA, they did so in the old NIAI from 2002 to 2009. They've been in NCAA since 2010. The intermediate, they were in U Sports. Uh, Has a record of 18 and 99. Uh, They won a grand total of uh, three games over the last six years, and it is not remotely surprising that the arrogance and incompetence – usually arrogant people are incompetent or incompetent people or at least modest. There is an arrogance that went along with this institution insisting that they get back to American college despite the fact that they are, of course, north of the border. And there is a gross incompetence in this organization that has gone unchecked for too long, which has culminated in this review. And I admittedly have not read the whole review because it's 136 pages. I will read the whole thing. It's going to take me a few more days with my schedule trying to hash out that time to sit. But thus far, from what I have read, and yet, full disclosure, I've not read the whole thing. I've read part of it. There is yet to be anything remotely surprising that I could not have gleaned as an outsider. Obviously, there is no plan here. Obviously, they should be playing in U sports. And from the way in which not just the football team has struggled, but many other of the athletic varsity teams at Simon Fraser has struggled, clearly the leadership in place has been poor. And frankly, I think it's good that there are changes coming. I just hope that by the time this can get fixed, it's not too late for the football program to play as a member of Can West at the U sports level. The Simon Fraser University Football Alumni Society announced today that they are calling for the football assets, the equipment, the money, the budgeting, all that stuff. I would imagine that includes the $700,000 that was raised by business leaders in that community, most notably from BC Lions owner Amar Dolman to be put into escrow while this is sorted out. That I think would be a very important step in getting this done. But again, kudos to them for having the review done. I just wish that it was done sooner. I wish that the, the university had more concrete things to say after it came out, because not a lick of what I've read so far has been remotely surprising. A lot of this is pretty common sense to me. It's good to talk to those Twitter people. It's good to do the research. Heck, we are reporters, you and me, Dunk. It is important to cross your T's and dot your I's and get the facts. But so far, I've yet to read anything where I'm not sitting there going, uh, yeah, duh, this organization has been in dire straits for a while on the field, apparently off the field as well. This the The, the panic button should have been hit four years ago, five years ago. Why have we waited this long?
0: It's simple. Stop the excuses and start doing the work. Simon Fraser University needs to support these student athletes who, especially in the case of the football program, put in essentially full-time hours to the football program. And, oh, yeah, by the way, they're students as well because largely in Canada, these athletes are students first. So they're full-time students, full-time football players and athletes as well. And they need to be supported properly. This has not been the case enough with the excuses enough with the talk and the hitting the pause button and trying to punt the football down the road because the pressure from the media, and yes, we are unbiased. We are just stating the facts here and giving our opinion on the situation is not going to stop. It's simple. Simon Fraser university should be playing football this season and they should be playing football in 2024 2024 and beyond. So get it straight, roll your sleeves up, just like the student athletes do every single day to uphold the values of your institution and do the same thing that you ask of them from an admission standard standpoint, and also an athletic standard standpoint. I've been subject to that myself in upholding the university and what it means to be a student athlete and also a focal point at an institution like that. And it is time, not even just Simon Fraser, to be quite honest, but some of these institutions start putting in some real work to actually help out their student athletes instead of standing around and think they're big shots all the time. Hodge, you talked about egos and I'm going to get on a little bit of a soapbox here, but instead (laughs) of standing around and observing Let's actually get in there and help out our student-athletes more because by and large part, a lot of these student-athletes get to the next level either because of the coaching staff that surrounds them and the great development programs that are around this country, especially in football, or and or I should say by their own sheer determination and work ethic. I want to see and challenge Simon Fraser University and athletic departments around the country to be better for their student-athletes. They like to set a high standard. It's one thing to talk about it, but the athletic departments need to actually put in the same amount of work that these student-athletes do. Well said, well said. And you talked about
2: in Canada as being part of that. In Canada, there is a difference in how student-athletes are treated and supported. And I wish that that had been more taken into account when Simon Fraser made what, in hindsight, was an unbelievably foolish decision to enter the Division II ranks without in any way, shape, or form, it seems, making a concerted effort to keep up with the other member institutions who they were then competing against. You can't send your your student-athletes into a knife fight with a spoon, and that's what they've done for the last 10 years, and it's not a surprise that this organization has struggled to field competitive teams. I mentioned the failures of the football program not insofar as to criticize the student-athletes at play. I am merely trying to illustrate how ill of a fit this was from the get-go. We do not, as Canadians, need to prove ourselves by going down and playing for Americans or against Americans. There are Canadian players in the NFL. There's Canadian players doing amazing things in the CFL. There's Canadians overseas playing professional football in places like Germany. And Japan and lots of other leagues. We do not. Like if given the same opportunity, Canadians can do anything that anybody else can do. But when you send Canadians in with one hand tied behind their back, we can't then blame the players when they struggle or fail. That's just an inevitability. So that's what I'm trying to illustrate here.
0: And one last let's point. look go for it. Yeah, well, real quick. Look at Jarell Cummings. Okay. He was assigned for Azure University, was a standout defensive back. JC's raved about him on this podcast. He goes and transfers quickly to the University of British Columbia and is on a team that is nationally ranked. So even the students can deal with adapting very quickly and much better than this administration at Simon Fraser University. Enough said. Points made. Hodge, great stuff. I know you've been all over this story, and we ain't going to let down. It's going to be unbiased. We're also going to give our takes, and I think the administration needs to step up in a major way. The University de montreal Cataban defeated the Laval-Université Rougé-Or 31-14 in front of a almost 20,000 fans at Stade Telus laval universite on Sunday what Montreal Caravan head coach Marco Ideluca called the best rivalry game in Canadian football. Hodge, you were there to take in the action. Do you agree with Ideluca's comments? And do you think Quebec City is a real candidate for CFL expansion
2: well this game has been on my bucket list for a while the stadium in Laval seats approximately 12,000 with standing room getting it closer to 20,000 this year's game was listed just shy of 19 officially I wouldn't be surprised if there were more people there and they just couldn't announce that for health and safety reasons but I will say this, having been to every Banjo Bowl since the game's inception, or at least the, since the game's redubbing, let's call it, in 2004 when it became an annual event, the tailgate at Laval for this game was as good as any I've ever been at. I would say on the low end, the amount of tailgating going on in the parking lot would have been 5,000 fans. I wouldn't be surprised if it was closer to seven or 8,000, but I didn't walk around and count everybody. The sea of people, most of them clad in red and gold, of course, for the Rouget or was wild. Now, I also wish that my French was better. I tried to brush up on my pretty admittedly lousy elementary school French before I went. And I had all this confidence going, and OK, I'm going to be good. And outside of ordering dinner, my French ended up being useless. There's a lot of trash talking going on between the two teams. And I could hear all of it. I couldn't make any of it out. But that being said, as much as we buried SFU's leadership, kudos to these two organizations. The Carabans were only formed as a football program in 2002. That is very recent in the grand scale of things. In Canadian football, the Rouge d'Or were founded in the mid-90s, and they've gone to combine 12 Vanier Cups since. And though I don't agree with the assessment of Coach Ayadaluca, I do think that this would be in the top five, maybe even top three for Canadian football rivalries, whether you talk about the U sports level or whether you talk about the CFL level. The Battle of Alberta, I think, has cooled off a bit. The Battle of Ontario has maybe cooled off a little bit in recent years. But this would be right there, I think, with the Battle of any of them. I'd probably still put the Prairies number one. Call me biased being on the prairies myself, but I do think Winnipeg and Saskatchewan, when you look at the Labor Day Classic and Banjo Bowl, it is number one. You could certainly argue this is number two. It was a great game. I will say it was a bit sloppy on the field. I don't think the student-athletes there are used to playing in that type of atmosphere. I talked to Montreal's head coach about that, and he did say this is the only time of the year we have to use a silent count. There's a lot of extras added into our game plan for this one, and it is challenging for student-athletes to overcome this type of environment. But that's exactly what the Caravans did, blowing the game open. It was tied at 14, well into the fourth quarter. There was a pick six. There was a muff kickoff uh, fielding from the from Laval that Montreal capitalized on. So the score got out of hand late, but it was close most of the way. And kudos again to these two schools who've done a brilliant job of not only fielding very athletic first class U sports football teams for the last well beyond a decade, but also for fostering what is an absolutely phenomenal rivalry. I have a video of the stadium at full uh, volume, full capacity on my Twitter page if you want to check that out. And if you ever want to make the trip to Quebec City for this rivalry game, having now gone there myself, I would encourage everybody to do so. It was fantastic.
0: I've been fortunate enough to cover multiple Vanier Cups at Laval University, and it wasn't Montreal Laval, admittedly, but that tailgate gets going early. There's been zip lines there, there's tons of games going on, there's energy. Even when Laval hasn't been in those Vanier Cups, the people have still put on their red and gold uniforms and come out and supported it. Even when Montreal was playing in a Vanier Cup there recently, when the University of Calgary beat the Kedaben, I think that was in. 2019 to win their first Vania cup since 1995. So the atmosphere is great there and the locals really embrace it, but I don't necessarily think it's a place in Hodge. I'm sure you're going to want to give your take on this too. That is great for CFL expansion. I think they have been bred to be Laval Rouge or fans there. And usually in Hodge, I think you experienced this, right? The game was on a Sunday. So Laval plays a good number of their home games at home. And I don't know if that can transition over to the CFL. Granted, it is still a decent distance away from Montreal that perhaps you could think that would be a possibility. But this game is a great one. It's been something that these two schools have developed and hyped up. The RSCQ or the Quebec university conference has their own TV deal with TVA that the teams actually get money from for the uninitiated out there. So the Quebec conference is unique in that way. Canada West has a television deal with mainly SaskTel and the respective cable providers in each of the Western provinces. I do those games on the Canada West football showcase. So they would be the next closest, I think to the Quebec conference, but they are far and away ahead of the other conferences in terms of actually getting money from a TV deal and the amount of interest. Hodge, I'm sure you witnessed this, but every time I go there, there are a number of newspaper reporters, and obviously that's transition to online, and there's television stations there that are covering these team teams, excuse me, not just on game day, but like a day in, day out basis. They are being followed. So I think that's part of What's going on? And I think, you know, Quebec in a way really supports their own. That's part of this as well. But it's very clear that the game day atmosphere they've created in Laval is one that is sustainable and they've really treated the fans well there as well. And I think that's why the fans reciprocate that in showing up. No matter how good really their team is, or even if their team's not playing, like I alluded to in a Vanier Cup, those fans still come out and support. Canadian university football.
2: Yeah, I would echo your sentiments for expansion. I think that Quebec City is probably not a very good candidate for expansion for the same reason that I think, for example, Alabama would be a bad candidate for NFL expansion. It's because for all intents and purposes, they have an NFL team. It's, it's the Alabama Crimson Tide. Right? Laval Rouge or you mentioned it. The, the press box at Laval was as full as any bomber game I've been to this season. It was just as full as the press box was at Percival Molson for the Montreal Alouettes game when they hosted the Argos on Friday night. And afterwards, the, the media attention, the cameras, the reporters, again, it was all CFL level. So. To me, I, I now the counter argument to that is Laval gets four regular season home games a year, and this is the biggest one. The others do not get close to twenty thousand people. By the way, the tailgate I am led to believe started at six a.m. for a one p.m. kickoff, a seven-hour tailgate. I can only imagine some of the shenanigans that <laughs> happened early in the morning before most people showed up. Because uh, I could say that the party was in full swing. I got there about eleven thirty, driving in from Montreal, two and a half three-hour drive. Um, but that being said, even if the CFL never goes there, it's something that I think should get more attention across the country. You're right that Quebec can of course be insular. That's part of their historical and cultural, um, background of, of course, in Canada. I'm not super well equipped to, to address that because I'm not from Quebec and I, I'm not French Canadian, but from an outsider's perspective, I was blown away by what I witnessed. I had so much fun. I would happily go again if, if they played again tomorrow. I would get on get on the airplane again and, and check it out. It was a blast. Now, the stadium in and of itself, I should say, I do think is very easily upgradable, if that's a word, to CFL standards. Fans are sitting on wooden benches. Their feet are on gravel. But if you can get professional-level seating, in there, you could easily fit, just from the current grandstands, I would I would guess 12,000 seats. And then the end zones, you've got easily enough room to get it to 20,000, 24,000. So I on, I, or I guess ironically, even if Quebec City isn't the best candidate for CFL expansion, their stadium is a lot closer to being to a CFL level uh, than Halifax. And, and arguably, TELUS currently has some elements of it that are better than Percival Molson in Montreal. I will also add one more thing because I talked to general manager of the Alouettes, Danny Machocha as well as Alouettes president, Mark Waitman, as part of an upcoming article I'm doing for the site. And they both are bullish on potential expansion to Quebec City. They don't feel as though it would chew into – the fan base or the resources that are currently available to the Alouettes. And they do think that that community could support a team. And I do think that means a lot for Machocha, given that he spent 10 years coaching for the Carabans, who again, for the uninitiated, are the absolute hated arch rivals of the Laval Rouge et Or. So again, I've got more research to do for the article, but at least those are two proud French speaking Quebecers based in Montreal think that it would be possible for expansion to happen up I guess it's northeast of, of the city of Montreal so we'll see what happens but regardless I was thrilled for the opportunity to go would encourage anybody else with interest to do the same
0: it's not a direct comparison but how you know this well the University of Manitoba Bisons play at IG Field the home of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and they have locker rooms there and a training facility and all that kind of stuff the University of Regina Rams play at Mosaic Stadium but they practice on campus at the University of Regina. So if you built the schedule a similar way to what those teams do, usually the Bombers are on the road when the Bisons play at home and vice versa during the regular season last week. I was in Regina on Friday night. The Rough Riders played at home. And then on Saturday afternoon, the Rams played at home. But that's a rarity. It usually only happens one time a year if it happens at all. And I think the key factor here would be Laval actually being on board with it. Because ultimately, more events and more football games at that stadium means potentially more revenue for the university and the business that is the football program there with the Rouge Or. So there would have to be some talks that go on there as to how that is split because, of course, the Ruggiero would be worried that there's more games. Perhaps that takes away from their games and people spending their money. But I do think there is enough appetite and interest there that it could be possible if you go about it the right way. And by that, I mean the CFL not just going in there like bulls and wanting everything their way because, based on what I've heard, that has been the holdup with Atlantic expansion. The CFL wants everything their way, and that's not how a partnership works. They learned that the hard way in the last CBA negotiations with President Solomon el leading the way, and the players actually being willing to go on strike, changed the complexion of that entire CBA deal that got done and was a real win for the players. So I think the league needs to realize that if they go about it the Halifax way, there could be a team out there. And also there would be potential for a team in Quebec City as well. Because some of the new state seating that's been in there, Hodge, and I don't know if you went and checked it out, but especially the upper bowl on the far side away from the press box, that's CFL level seating. So I think you could easily get that stadium to CFL standards. And the indoor training facility that is attached to the press <laughs> box that I'm sure you saw when you walked by. Unbelievable admittedly has a lot of local programming in it. It seems like there's always somebody on the field, but if you had a pro team there, that facility would be better than a number of teams in the CFL, the Calgary Stampeders, for sure. The Edmonton Elks only kind of have, you know, about half or three quarters of a field there. It's a full indoor field there that is right beside the stadium there. So, you can see how it would possibly work. You would probably have to have some more locker rooms and offices there, but that's easy enough to build at some point if you were going to go down that road. And I think the rivalry would be great, right? You hear people talk about that old rivalry with the Quebec Nordiques and the Montreal Canadiens and how they hated each other. You experience this one between the Carabin and the Rouge Or and how great it is for Canadian university football and Canadian football overall. So you can see how it could happen, but partnerships need to come together and the CFL has to understand that it has to be beneficial for the people that they're talking to about this potential in Quebec City. And of course, we also need an owner. So uh, unless you and
2: you and I are gonna put our money together, Dunk, we no, I'm good. So <laughs> somebody somebody
0: else needs to step up. So we, we should mention that as well. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders are short favorites on Friday night when they visit the Ottawa Red Blacks. The Riders are coming off back-to-back losses following an emotional win in the Labor Day Classic. Well, Ottawa have lost seven in a row. Who will reverse the trend first, the Riders or the Red Blacks?
2: I think I've made it pretty clear what I think of the Ottawa Red Blacks right now. For that reason, (laughs) I'm taking the Riders To win and cover, yes, the Riders had a disappointing performance in the Banjo Bowl. They followed that up with another disappointing performance, but I think that they are still on track to make the playoffs. They are not going to give up trying to host a playoff game until that is mathematically no longer possible. Give me the green and white. I think they pulled this one out.
0: I'm a little worried because last season after the Riders lost to the Elks with Taylor Cornelius at quarterback, this time it's Trey Ford, a much different looking Elks team. They went on to limp out the season and not make the playoffs. And Cody Fajardo was calling people out and all the rest. I don't necessarily think that's going to happen with the Rough Riders. And I do like them to win in cover in this game, but I'm a little hesitant about it just because of what happened last season. I do think they're in the right direction Much different than last year. They're in the driver's seat for a playoff spot in the West Division. But last year just gives me a little bit of pause for concern.
2: Yeah, it's hard to buy into the Riders until you realize the alternative is buying into the Red Blacks. So (laughs) that is why I am taking Saskatchewan. If it was any other team, I'd probably be picking against the Riders this week. For now, you may as well slap a watermelon on my head and call me George Reed, baby. I'm taking Saskatchewan. If that is the alternative, i have take it Saskatchewan. The Edmonton Elks have opened as eight-point home underdogs against the BC Lions this week. The Elks have lost to the BC Lions twice this season by a combined score of 49 to nothing. That's right, two shutouts. Though both contests, of course, occurred before Trey Ford took over as Edmonton's starting quarterback. He's 4-2 so far in that role. Can the Elks get it done to win a third straight game at Commonwealth Stadium?
0: Yes, and the Elks can cover this team is trending in the right direction. Kevin Brown, for all the hype about Trey Ford and rightfully so, has been an absolute beast. He crossed the 1000-yard mark against the Riders on the ground with a buck 75 and a wicked touchdown run in that win, and I think that's really been where the Elks have started to dominate games is up front running the football and playing much better on defense. So, I really like the Elks in this spot to cover for sure. And I would also sprinkle on the money line because I think there's some value as well. BC is trending in the wrong direction here. I know they had a great last two and a half minutes there at BC Place to come back against Ottawa. But for the rest of that game, they did not look great. I think if that's the case, the Elks will deliver the knockout blow. And it's unfathomable to think, Hodge, but get a third straight win at home. I'm taking the BC Lions to win this game,
2: though I am not taking them to cover. I think the Elks can keep this one within a touchdown. The Elks have been great at closing out games. The BC Lions, not so much, though they did, of course, have that amazing comeback just this past weekend so i will take the bc lions to win they they want to win this one obviously to keep pace with winnipeg a win this week while the bombers are on a buy would give them an identical 10 and 4 record as their west division rivals and to me that is now the best race in the cfl the race to finish first atop the west division last year the bombers pulled away this year they're falling back i don't think the bc lions make a mistake here i think they go to 10 wins
0: The Calgary Stampeders are short home underdogs on Saturday night when they host the Montreal Alouettes. The Owls won the first meeting between these two teams back in July and have a 6-0 record against teams that aren't B.C., Winnipeg, or Toronto. Meanwhile, the Stamps have lost four of their last five but are coming off a bye week traditionally. Dave Dickinson is pretty good after that. Who you got?
2: Well, the Calgary Stampeders were on a bye in week four, and they came back and got their butts whipped in Winnipeg 24-11. So with respect to Dave Dickinson, who I still think is a very good head coach and has been very good coming off of bye weeks over the course of his long head coaching career, I am taking the Montreal Alouettes as underdogs to not only cover, but or pardon me, as short favorites. I'm taking them to win this game. I'm happy to eat up to a field goal on the road. Yes, the Alouettes have a losing record at six and seven, but you mentioned it, Dunk. They are 0-7 against the league's top-tier teams of Winnipeg, BC, and Toronto. They're 6-0 and against everybody else. They've yet to lose to a non-top-tier opponent. Now, I think that spells potentially very bad news for the Alouettes because come playoffs, they're, of course, going to be competing against the best teams in the CFL, but so far at least they've shown that they can take care of business when they're playing a middling or struggling opponent. I think at best you could argue the Calgary Stampeders are middling right now. I think at worst you can argue that they're just flat out struggling. So I will take the Alouettes to win this one. They almost got it done against Toronto. I think they can get it done in Calgary.
0: That's a major reason for me why I like Montreal in this game to win because of avenging that loss to the Argos. And yes, it's not the same team, but they know they were so close to getting it done. They're going to be laser focused in continuing to try to lock in that second spot in the East Division to get a home playoff game. It looks like that'll probably come against the Hamilton Tiger Cats, if all things are being equal to end the season. So I really like the value with the Alouettes here, although I would really like to hear the honest reason why Jason Moss has decided to keep William back out of the lineup and not utilize him, I think there is something bubbling between the surface Ooh. there or under the surface. I should say I really like Montreal in this spot, revenge-minded, after losing to the Argos in a game that they are feeling like they should have won. I saw William Stanback after
2: that game. Looked healthy to me, but that's, that's just what I'm saying. The Toronto Argonauts are 10point home favorites against the Hamilton Tiger Cats this week, and what will be the fourth and final meeting between the teams this season. Toronto has swept the season series thus far and are 11 and0 this year when Chad Kelly starts and finishes a game. Hamilton, who were largely written off, even just the recent few weeks ago, have suddenly won three of their last four, including victories over BC and Winnipeg. Can they finally take down the Argos this week?
0: the only way I see them doing it is because the Argos have first place clinched, but I still don't think that Toronto wants to see their rivals in Hamilton get a win over them for any reason. (laughs) We'll see when the lineups come out here, if this changes the line at all. And perhaps if the Argos approach has shifted to rest some of their guys here, Early in this stretch and maybe play them late to have them ready and ideally sharp for the playoffs. So I'm going to hold here until we see the lineups. But I think you probably take the Tiger Cats against the spread. And then as for who's going to win, I want to see exactly who's going to play first. If it's a full Argos roster, then I'll go with Toronto. But if they're going to start resting some key guys, then I'll take Hamilton yeah I'm smashing Steeltown against the spread here. I think 10 points is too
2: much. And as much as I'm very impressed with the Argos, I talked to a number of their players after their win in Montreal, and those guys did not seem to care, honestly that they'd booked the East Final. Yeah, they were celebrating, but I think they celebrate all of their victories. They are laser focused. They like like it really they didn't say this. This is my speculation of what I witnessed my assessment of what I saw. But to me, they really seem great cup or bust. They genuinely don't seem to care about how many games they have left. They're coming out with fire to win every single week. That being said, I do think that there is such thing as emotional letdowns. We saw the Bombers have one in Hamilton, I think at least a little bit in that game. So for that reason, I will take the Argos to win, but... I, like you, Dunk, want to see the depth charts, uh, but I do think that Hamilton plus 10 is a really good buy. It's time for Hodges Heritage Moment. On this day in 1997, Adam Rita and Jeff Reinbold got into a post-game fight following a 26-14 victory for the Blue Bombers. Robert Davis delivered a late hit on quarterback Damon Allen in the dying moments of this contest, which enraged the BC Lions. Rita shoved Reinbold before being placed into a headlock by Grant Carter, who was pulled off Rita by Virgil Robertson and Chuck Bradley before being pummeled. Rita apologized to his team and to the fans, but refused to apologize to Reinbold, alleging that he placed bounties on opposing players. The CFL eventually leveled multiple fines, totaling almost $15,000 for the incident. Dunk, I'm curious, what do you remember of this brawl
0: (laughs) dude it was absolutely heated and the thing that stands out most is the allegation of the bounties and we've heard that in the nfl and even the ncaa but not too often in the cfl though based on what i've heard from some people that has happened at least in the past so for that to actually come out publicly for one of the first times that i can remember was definitely memorable
2: well, to me, this was interesting because it kind of spoiled one of Jeff Reinbold's head coaching wins, and there was only six of them so that that you know that that's a problem He only won six, one of them was spoiled with a fist fight. The only regret I have about this, and by the way, fortunately Damon Allen was not hurt i I can't speak obviously is a long time ago to whether or not the Bombers were making attempts to injure other quarterbacks across the league with the allegation of bounties. However, the one regret I certainly have about this situation, I wish it had happened in the social media era because the fallout and the response, it would have been electric. It would have been incredible. Even better yet, I wish it happened during the three-down era so we could have talked about it on this show.
0: It can happen. We'll put J.C. on the research of it in the offseason.
2: Or may, may, maybe maybe, that could be a, a charity thing, a boxing match. Adam Rita and Jeff Reinbold.
0: <laughs> well, it, could,
2: it could be the new uh, uh, Joe Cap Angela Mosca. Rest in yeah. peace.
0: There we go. Let's go to the three-minute drill. The Ottawa Redblacks signed two kickers on Tuesday morning, adding Michael Domagala and Kieran Burnham. What does that say about the job security of Lewis Ward? well i don't
2: think it has anything to do with the job security i think it has to do with the fact that lewis ward tore his pectoral muscle he is out for the rest of the season he'll need surgery trevor harris spoke to the media last week and said he's getting ready to return to field work after suffering a tibial plateau fracture in mid-july do you think we'll see him back on the field
0: for real this season He seems pretty certain about it. Now, players are usually confident that they can get back ahead of time. And obviously, he wants to play. And I think he would be the best quarterback for this team in the postseason. And if I'm in Harris in the front office and the coaching staff with Craig Dickinson and the GM Jeremy O'Day, I'm looking at it going, okay, if we just get into the playoffs, maybe Trevor Harris plays a little bit in the final regular season game or something like that. To knock some of that rust off and get some of his confidence back if he's healthy then potentially we could be a team to be reckoned with but let's see if he can get all the way through the rehab and be cleared to return to the field Calgary St. Peters linebacker Micah Awe has now been fined for high hits on quarterbacks three times this season does that give him a tag of being a dirty player I think at best, he plays on the edge
2: and oversteps a little bit sometimes. At worst, yes, he is a dirty player. Uh, personally, I would err on the side of the former, but this pattern is very hard to ignore. Micah Awe has been fine many times before this season, three times, all for high qu- hits on quarterbacks this year. Got to clean that up, man. we Got to protect quarterbacks in this league, as discussed at length on this podcast. Canadian receiver John Mechie III made his much-anticipated NFL debut on Sunday after missing his rookie season in 2022 with leukemia. He caught one pass for 17 yards in Houston's 31-20 loss to the Indianapolis Colts. How good did it feel to see him out there?
0: It was great, honestly, man, to know that he's battled back through this adversity after being a star at the University of Alabama, a high-round draft pick by the Texans. They've had faith in him been behind him to get him back on the field Simon Fraser's athletic department could learn something about that What the Texans have done to help Mechie and for Mechie himself to get there was awesome I know a lot of people in Canada were happy to see it including his brother Royce Mechie was playing at a high level for the Argonauts so it was just a don't want to say necessarily great end to the story but a great beginning to him being on the field in his NFL career. Veteran offensive lineman Philip Blake returned to the lineup this past week against the Riders after suffering a torn pec in training camp. Could he help firm up that O-line unit? I think so. He did not start this past
2: game. He was the sixth man. I assume they're just working him into the lineup right now. But that offensive line has still struggled at times. And Blake is capable. He's one of the only players in the league capable of, of honestly probably starting at all five. Positions, tackle, guard, center. So I think he can help secure that unit for sure. They paid a big bucks in free agency for a reason. Last one, Matthew Peterson had 280 yards from scrimmage in Alberta's 26-22 win in an upset victory over the Saskatchewan Huskies, are the Golden Bears officially the team to beat in Can West.
0: Not quite yet, even though they beat the Huskies at home. For the first time in nearly five years. That was the first home loss for Saskatchewan in almost five years. So it's put the Golden Bears on notice to everybody else in the conference. But I felt like from the jump in 2023, the University of British Columbia Thunderbirds were going to be the team to beat. We're going to see these two teams play. And after that, I think we'll know. But until somebody... Knocks off Saskatchewan, who's been to two straight fanier Cups and has been in the Hardy Cup for a bunch of years in a row, then the Huskies will still be the team to beat. Although it was a big time win from that Golden Bears program. The top 10 rankings just dropped as we're recording this dunkster.
2: Saskatchewan is five nationwide, UBC at seven, Alberta at nine. So the Golden Bears is not getting a lot of respect. On the national level, i take some issue with that. I think they should be higher than nine. But that said, I'm looking forward to seeing them in person on Saturday when they visit IG Field to take on the University of Manitoba Bisons who need a win in the worst way. We thank you, as always, for listening to the 3 Down Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you're going to place any bets on the CFL this week, please do so through our website. That is the best way to support us. Just please make sure you're doing so responsibly. We'll see you next week for another episode.
1: Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it?
2: I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point.
1: 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree?